Hi everyone, I am Emily Lee, conference content producer from Cambridge Health Tech Institute. I'm really pleased to have the opportunity to speak with Dr. Matthew Lundgren, Associate Director at the Stanford Center for Artificial Intelligence in Medicine and Imaging. He's also an assistant professor of radiology at Stanford University. Matthew, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So tell us about your current role at Stanford University and what a typical day at work for you is like. <laughs> well, okay. Um, so my role is interesting in the sense that I kind of wear two different hats. I, on the one hand, am a clinician, so I take care of patients. I uh, interpret imaging. I perform procedures uh, as an interventional radiologist at Stanford. So I have a, a busy clinical practice. But then with my other hat, as you mentioned in the introduction, I'm now the co-director, actually, of the Amy Center here at Stanford, which is sort of a mm -hmm. medical school-wide center that hopes to sort of bring in you know, researchers and faculty from both the clinical enterprise at Stanford and also the sort of the engineering and computer science part of campus and sort of work on clinically important problems. And, and as part of the leadership of the center, my job is to find those opportunities, uh, secure resources and, and, and form partnerships. That's wonderful. And how long has that center been around? You know, it's funny. It's, it feels like it's been around forever, um, <laughs> but it actually, it's only been around about a year and a half. I mean, we were oh. clearly doing work on this before that, but it wasn't really a formal thing. It was, it was very much like, hey, I have a friend uh, in orthopedic surgery who has an idea, or, you know, anesthesiologist wanted to talk to a computer mm -hmm. scientist. Do you know anybody? And we started to get enough of this sort of basically a, a groundswell of interest and in, in sort of these new AI and machine learning technologies around different problems in different clinical disciplines. And so we felt like it was time to kind of just step up and, uh, and organize around it. I see. That's really cool that you have a whole center that is very interdisciplinary between all of the fields to make this happen. So can you give us some examples of some of your current projects? Absolutely. You know, I think that one of the, our strengths, as you sort of just touched on, is the fact that it's very multidisciplinary. And so we really try to serve as like a resource, a source of knowledge and education, but certainly sort of teaming up multidisciplinary groups that include statisticians, that include business students, that include law students mm -hmm. and, and uh, those in computer science as well. Some of the things that we're really excited about are, are a lot of our clinical applications. We've just wrapped up uh, a multi-center prospective clinical trial, which we're the first to do that formally as an academic institution, at least, where we're really exploring how these technologies interact with human experts on the ground. There's been a lot of discussion generally that these tools are possible to build. And what I'm referring to, of course, are algorithms or, you know, quote unquote, AI that can, you know, mm -hmm. cognitively automate some of the things that we do in medicine. But a lot of the things that we, we think they can do in the lab, we haven't really yet shown to, uh, to a great degree how they perform in, in real world situations. So one algorithm we're working with involves chest x-rays where mm -hmm. we can, you know, attempt to triage patients with physicians in the loop prior to radiologists uh, having to interpret them themselves. And, and so with that kind of an approach, it potentially allows patients to be treated faster, cuts down on some of the frustrations and bottlenecks in various hospital systems. We have another algorithm that can uh, help hospitalize patients who are dealing with end-of-life diagnoses uh, to mm -hmm. help predict mortality. That, that algorithm made the news not too long ago. But the goal is to actually implement that so that patients who are likely to have very close to end-of-life uh, diagnoses, it's important to have palliative care end-of-life discussions early on because we find that patients generally dislike when they're treated in the hospital in the last days of life. And so the goal is to try to understand how they you know, would like to plan out 
the remaining days that they may or may not have. And so that that kind of stuff, I think, as, as we're seeing in, in practice, uh, we try to find you know applications where the use case uh, really provides benefits to our patients. I see. So is there any algorithm that you're working with are supporting the port of care diagnostics? Uh, yeah, we have algorithms that are looking at sort of how can we detect arrhythmias. You may know about the uh, the Apple Heart Study, which is obviously mm-hmm. a large one, obviously sponsored by Apple, but but led by researchers affiliated with our center. And and so those are large population health level assistive diagnostics uh, where we're looking at whether the epidemiology really does match up with some of the the technical results that we're getting in the lab. Again, as history has shown us, even before the the boom of AI uh, algorithms, machine learning certainly did have stumbling blocks when it sort of worked on a nice, clean data set in a laboratory environment. But in a, you know, a very heterogeneous or even larger population, there tends to be biases and other things that kind of crop up and can really cause detrimental performance. And so, again, one of our one of our big goals is as we design projects, we try to provide guidance along those lines where we are looking at the end uh, result before we start a project, understanding how will the data be used? How will the information that the model produces be used? What are the potential biases and problems that could occur? And is it possible that the model is localizing on correlations and not causations mm-hmm. when it makes a decision? Because um, obviously that, that can cause problems down the line. So these are the things that we, we've, we've learned a lot about. And thanks to a lot of our biomedical data scientists and epidemiologists here, uh, that we partner with, we really feel like we're in good footing to evaluate these in a safe but effective way and really show that they have benefit. Yeah, definitely. And I think that in today's world, we really need the collaboration with all kinds of fields and all kinds of companies, especially Apple in AI. So can you tell us a little bit how did that collaboration happen? Yeah. So, you know, with, with groups like that, I mean, certainly there are lots of different uh, industry partners, but many of them, I think, are wisely choosing to partner with academic institutions or mm-hmm. certainly domain experts, either they're hiring them directly right. uh, in some cases, as you may have seen. Um, and I think that that I'm certainly supportive of that because, again, when you don't, and it, that really does reinforce, again, this sort of the validation of the multidisciplinary uh-huh. uh, approach, because uh, what we have seen, or at least we've encountered here occasionally, there may be a group who is in computer science or in engineering who has acquired a medical data sets and are working on a problem that had they had a physician or a practitioner in the loop at the beginning, they may have advised them against the particular task that they're working on, a task that wouldn't be medically or clinically useful, for example. Or uh, on the other hand, when you see that, and there's been you know literature on this topic, but if you were to deploy a model and not really understand the potential harms, and that's something that a clinician who is in practice day to day can give you that context and prevent some sort of errors in that way. I think that the end result is number one, safety, which is, you know, of course, important. Yeah. We like to talk about the move fast, break things culture in Silicon Valley, but we also have the medical <laughs> first do no harm culture. And both of those things are at odds. And, and oh, I think yeah. in a good way, mm-hmm. there's a tension, right, between mm-hmm. very conservative and very aggressive. And I think that that partnership is is critical. So when we have partnerships with Apple and other large technical companies, technological companies who do have scale, we would like to leverage that in an intelligent way that that allows us to sort of do hypothesis driven research, but also have good outcomes that are that are safe and effective. Mm-hmm. That's very nice. So I was browsing through your LinkedIn a little bit before the podcast, and I saw that you got a master's degree in public health at the University of North Carolina. 
and then you went to medical school at the University of Michigan, followed by getting your residency at Duke University. So I see a lot of medical experience here, but I don't see or know where you got the data science and machine learning and AI inspiration from. So how did you get to where you are now? And can you tell us about your background and inspiration for your current work? Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's definitely been an interesting, I guess, course based on that, <laughs> uh, you know, the resume, but certainly, yeah. So my, my real interest came, I think, from looking at population level uh, problems, some of the things that early on. I was interested in were, was trying to understand relationships of practitioners with imaging equipment and ownership, uh, something called self-referral. And throughout my training and even in my public health training, it was important to try to take, you know, local hypotheses and maybe even studies that are done in one hospital, but not take that as the truth and, and try to expand that to a population level and think about where something may work at one institution, not the other. And in order to do that, you need a lot of data. And, and anytime you start to work with large data sets, it becomes clear fast that if you don't have the skill sets of working with either Python or R or you know, have a competent data science team and, and a statistician to partner with, you really won't get very far. And oh, yeah. so fairly early on in my training, those things became skill sets that I worked very hard at sort of getting competent with. Mm -hmm. And through that, coming to Stanford, in trying to put together that same data set and work on large data, you know, sort of I, I had the opportunity to, to interact with, with Andrew Ang and his lab. And in that mm -hmm. conversation sort of sparked the very first project, which was to say, well, let's, let's look at something like pneumonia on chest x-rays. You guys are telling me all about your vision models that aren't working with structured data like I had, but, but actually looking at the images like I do with my day job. And that was intriguing. And so that's kind of how it started. And since then, it's been it's been a really fun uh, exploration. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and wanted to let you know about one of my favorite events coming up this spring. The 27th International Molecular Medicine Tricon is taking place March 1st to 4th, 2020 in San Francisco. Professor Matthew Lundgren will be our invited guest to speak in the Precision Medicine program at this conference. And you can save $100 on registration with the code POD100. That's P-O-D. 100. Head over to triconference.com to learn more about Tricon. Very, very nice journey. So as a radiologist working on AI and machine learning, can you share with us what aspect of a radiologist's work can be replaced by AI and what aspect can never be replaced? Yeah, again, this for me, this is obviously a topic that comes up a ton. I think it's a great question. For, for a lot of folks, there is a desire to sort of really understand where this augment versus replace narrative is really gonna, you know, it, there seems to be like a, a, a debate to some extent of who, who believes what. I think for us, because we're in academia, we, we try to focus on like, what is the interesting scientific question and whether it's right or wrong, we wanna show whether it's right or wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and so we really try to focus on areas in medicine where we think will have the largest impact. And in radiology, three quarters of the world doesn't have access to a radiologist. Um, mm -hmm expertise, sometimes not even imaging exam. And we feel like the three to four billion people across the world that live in countries like Liberia that have, you know, two radiologists for a population of almost yeah. 10 million, that kind of a situation mm -hmm. to us provides an opportunity to not focus as much on the replace versus augment narrative and really try to say, how can we develop a tool that will help the clinicians serving those populations interpret imaging uh, in, a, in a way that makes them more effective. 
And so to give you an example that we, we partnered with a hospital in South Africa that runs a large clinic for HIV positive patients mm-hmm. who are suspected of having lung disease. Now, there are only a few radiologists who are available to them, and it really is a problem because they don't believe they have the expertise to make proper diagnoses and help their patients. And so we worked with them to develop a model that was able to more accurately than their own radiologists determine the presence or absence of active tuberculosis. And we didn't just add that in as a replacement. What we did was we actually gave it to the pulmonologist in an experiment to say, can this make you better than you are without this model, but certainly can the combination of this pulmonologist who does not have formal radiology training Mm -hmm. in combination with the model, does that make you as good or better than the radiologist? Because if it does, then it relieves some of the pressure and the burden on the system to have that lack of expertise kind of still Mm -hmm. being a big bottleneck. And and what we found was that indeed it does in, in in this particular use case. And so we think that pushing on that narrative uh, and that experimental thought is sort of what uh, kind of gets us out of bed and really, you know, sort of informs what we work on, at least in our, uh, in some of our leading work in our lab. Um, and, and rather than sort of, again, focusing on the, the you know, the highest yield automation or economic, um, uh, 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 you know, goal. But, but, but to your point, I think that there are definitely areas. I think humans are, are not awesome at um, things like measuring um, and comparing <laughs> measurements. That's, I mean, that's just that's something yeah. a computer can certainly do better. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would, a, a human radiologist would welcome the opportunity to have that be automated and quantification of, of various types of imaging examinations mm-hmm. certainly would be something mm-hmm. that would be helpful. And then, of course, the biggest use case, I think, for now is going to be the application of machine learning in creating the images. So better and faster reconstruction, you can get your MRI in minutes instead of an hour, all those kinds of applications, I think, will be the first on the actual scene uh, when you go to visit your local radiologist, uh, as opposed to some of the stuff that makes the headlines, which is, you know, we can make diagnoses like radiologists in certain areas. Mm-hmm. No, those are very exciting examples that you just mentioned. So there's a lot of AI technologies out there for the healthcare field. And um, what are some of the challenges and constraints of implementing AI in healthcare? versus other industry? And where are we at right now in healthcare? Yeah, this is obviously known as the last mile uh, problem that has been articulated in a lot of different industries. Uh, We're certainly not the only one to struggle with this, but we do have some additional complications that make it hard, certainly to to take a tool or model that was developed potentially at Stanford or maybe at Google or wherever else and apply Mm -hmm. that to a large population that's so heterogeneous. I mean, I'm not just talking about the heterogeneity in terms of the diseases, but I'm also talking about the different healthcare systems who have different electronic medical records, different imaging device manufacturers, right? Different protocols. Each of those differences provide a a bit of a stumbling block for a one-size-fits-all solution. And so some of the challenges that I see and probably some of the frustrations that are coming from the promise of the technology not meeting up with the reality of what we're seeing on the ground in, in practice, that gap is is going to take a while to fill. Now, those of us, I think, that are involved in the research can see certainly that there is a path forward, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it's not a quick path. And certainly there will be certain groups that will have the upper hand in terms of leveraging these tools and learning more about them. And then some will potentially be left behind. And that, I think, is an important thing to to, to sort of discover and think about because, again, what we already have in this country, and certainly in a, in a global sense, we have, a, we have a disparity. We have a tiered healthcare system in a lot of ways. And what we don't want to see is that only those that are fortunate enough to be at you know, certain institutions or certain 
uh, groups to have um, you know this leg up or this advantage uh, via the healthcare because in, in a couple ways, uh, if we're implementing these tools and technologies only considering the groups that are able to do that, uh, we miss number one, the opportunity to include the populations that could potentially benefit from these technologies. But number two, we, we could also worsen the disparities that, that we're already seeing. And so I think we're very cognizant of that. I think we spend a lot of time thinking about, well, if we can make you know, the common diagnoses here at Stanford, can we also make the common diagnoses in you know, rural West Virginia or in you know, Southern India or wherever those other uh, populations that may potentially use these algorithms reside? And that's a critical, both a scientific question that we still haven't quite solved, but, but we're working on it, mm-hmm. um, but also a technical and infrastructure question. So the challenges, I think, are, are predominantly around, number one, you know, again, infrastructure and sort of the heterogeneity in the landscape. But the second, I think, is keeping in mind that there are you know, populations that could potentially be left behind, and we really need to keep that in mind as we build these tools and deploy these technologies. Okay, so a lot of people are referring to AI as a black box because they're not so comfortable with it yet. So if there is an algorithm that works very well for your purpose, but you do not know how, you don't know or understand it completely, would you still use it? Absolutely. I think this is a, this is a question, this is, and you're right, you're hitting on a very interesting <laughs> conversation that comes up a lot. Um, I, I've heard um, folks that say you don't, ever really know how a person makes a decision. And so uh-huh. they're people are black boxes. I've heard that before. Mm-hmm. I've also heard that in, in medicine, there are many drugs that we suspect we know how they work, but we don't actually know how they work, but yet they work. <laughs> and so <laughs> we use them. And so that argument has been made before. I think that the black box argument, if you're taking it at face value and saying, you have absolutely no way to figure out whether this model is working on correlation or causation and it could potentially cause harm, mm-hmm. then of course, I think that we have to spend more time working on understanding where it's pulling its you know, weights from, what data sets it's being used to make its decision. That, that, that's true. I mean, no mm-hmm. question. However, if you have sound methodologic design and you have done your due diligence in terms of testing and evaluating and you're still not able to completely articulate the you know, intricacies of the decisions, but yet it's effective and you feel comfortable with how it's effective, I have absolutely no problem using that in a trial or a prospective fashion. And I think that that is probably the point of view of a lot of people that are doing this research. I see. So a lot of people are talking about precision medicine now, and I wanted to get your opinion on how AI fits into the precision medicine landscape. Yeah, we, we talk a lot about precision health here, and that's kind of been a big distinction at Stanford between precision medicine and precision health. I think that um, it, it sounds very much like a catchphrase, but it, it's quite a different mm-hmm. philosophy where, where I think that the, a lot of the research that's done here is looking at um, keeping people out of the hospital. Um, in fact, there was one of our leadership in, in radiology, uh, Sam Gabriel chair, he quite articulately tells us that we should be celebrating when we close hospitals, not open them, and, and that we should be working towards those goals. And I, I think that's a really elegant way of, of sort of describing what precision health means. And so if we can, again, turning back to something like the Apple study, which is a, a very much an early stage mm-hmm. example, but if you can get to the place where the patients, the wearables, the, the peripherals are able to monitor, detect uh, and, and potentially help patients stay healthy, get stay out of the hospital, catch things very early, monitor disease, that seems to be an institutional priority, but certainly maybe a, you know, a noble priority 
to try to find ways to yeah. apply these technologies in, in, in that sense. But certainly for medication discovery, for new oncologic targets, either via genomics or other you know, cell biology uh, work and, and in drug discovery, all of these areas are where precision health and AI have huge potential. And I think that obviously academic institutions, but certainly large pharmaceutical companies have big advantages in potentially achieving those, mm-hmm. uh, those gains with, with the technology, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you want to see more in the field of precision medicine? I mean, I personally would love to see opportunities for us to conduct more global scale uh-huh. um, you know, experiments, uh, either with data collection and deployment mm-hmm. or epidemiologic level, a population health level kind of projects. I think that for me, we've spent a lot of time as a field and just because of logistics and convenience working with the populations that we immediately have access to. But I think that transformation globally with obviously the adoption of, you know, things like cell phones and smartphones on the cell phones Mm -hmm. give us access to patients directly all over the world. And I think that, you know, with the spread of knowledge and the understanding of the opportunity that some of these technologies might bring, I think we have an opportunity, despite a lot of the potential downsides, to really try to leverage large populations and understand a little bit more about health and disease generally which I think will inform a lot of how we move as a field overall. And that's across the board and in all different areas of disease. So I do have a bonus question for you, Matt. We've been talking a lot about interdisciplinary study, especially in AI and medicine. What major would you advise your children or your family members to get into a data science-driven major or go to medical school like you or both? Um, Well, I firmly believe medical school is still a calling. I think that there's a lot of personal sacrifice that goes into pursuing medicine that that I think you really have to be, it has to be something that you're driven to do for for one. But but I think that anyone, everybody actually, no matter what you're doing, uh, whether you're an English major, whether you're an engineering major, whether you're into art history, I think that it makes a lot of sense to have a basic competency in AI and the fundamentals of the technologies, not necessarily because you're going to pursue a research career or you're because you're going to develop algorithms, but, but because whether you want it to or not, it, it actually runs and conducts a lot of your life. Mm-hmm. And that's whether you're interacting with your banking, your commerce, your email, your applications for positions, you know, either institutions or jobs. If you become incarcerated, if you have you know, brushes with the legal system, AI is everywhere. And it's in places where it would help to understand the fundamentals, where things go well, where they don't go well. I think that you know, some of the facial recognition research that had been done on you know, some of the flaws and faults would be fairly straightforward to understand if there was a general competency along you know, all the industries about how these tools and technologies do and do not work. And so I encourage everyone to look at even, there's plenty of online courses that are free. I really, really like AI for Everyone, which is no math, no coding, just a simple introduction to concepts that was a free course by Andrew Eng. I think those kinds of things everybody should take. It's required, I think it should be required at least for everyone to understand because that's increasingly how our lives are being conducted, whether we notice it or not. That's wonderful. Matthew, thank you so much for your time and insights today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's been a great conversation. That was Dr. Matthew Lundgren. Associate Director at the Stanford Center for Artificial Intelligence in Medicine and Imaging, and he's also an Assistant Professor of Radiology at Stanford University. I'm Emily Lee. Thank you for listening.